Welcome to Looks Like New on KGNU's It's the Economy. I'm Bailey Troutman. This is a show that asks old questions about new technology, even addressing questions that should have been asked a long time ago. We join you on the fourth Thursday of every month on the radio, or you can listen online as a podcast. Looks Like New is a production of the Media Enterprise Design Lab at CU Boulder. My 18th birthday ushered in a new evolution of my technology use. I finally got an Instagram account. My first social media profile, my first real opportunity to connect with people from my past and present, and even make connections for the future as I prepared to go to college. My parents wouldn't allow me to have any online presence beyond email until the day I legally became an adult, and I eagerly clicked the I consent button to accept Instagram's terms and conditions as soon as I could. I'd spent time researching for my friends' profiles from the internet just to keep up. Fast forward to today, and now I find myself distancing from platforms, reducing my screen time whenever possible, and yet still very invested for a variety of reasons. In previous episodes, we've explored some of the reasons why we turn to the internet, especially social media platforms, for support. We have scratched the surface of the ethical considerations, the ramifications of data tracking each day, and the environmental impacts of our technologies. I, like many of you, still consent to use platforms and social media applications without really reading the fine print that's so littered with intense jargon. Even though there are so many cons to social media and technology more broadly, there are also so many gains that make it really difficult to do without. The complexity and plethora of arguments for and against social media, the continual research that overflows and overviews the outcomes and impacts connected to use, are frequent reminders of the true tensions that exist. Headlines are filled with conversations that continue interrogating whether companies like Facebook, Apple, Google, and Microsoft, and others, can ever truly operate ethically. On the coattails of the Cambridge Analytica scandal, constant data breaches of personal information, and congressional hearings with big tech company leaders, it seems the situations we find ourselves facing now are those that resulted from a lack of foresight. Leaders and engineers may argue that they had no idea what they created would ever turn capable of what we have today. I find myself frequently wondering, what happened in the process of their progress? Did they skip asking certain questions or thinking about implications? Why are we always cleaning up the messes? Can we even clean them up? What should ethical operations look like or entail for technology companies? Can social media platforms be ethical? To explore these questions, researchers like Dr. Casey Fiesler are doing incredible work. In fact, Dr. Fiesler was recently awarded a grant from the National Science Foundation, NSF, to help technology development teams be forward-thinking about ethical issues rather than only retroactive. So today we're going to have a conversation about ethics and social media, asking the question, can social media be ethical? Dr. Casey Fiesler is an assistant professor in the Department of Information Science at the University of Colorado Boulder. 
She earned her PhD in human-centered computing from Georgia Tech and a JD from Vanderbilt Law School, and she researches social computing, ethics, law, and fan communities. Dr. Fiesler is the director of the Internet Rules Lab and the Information Science Department at CU Boulder, in which students explore ethics, inclusivity, social justice, education, and work towards making our technologies and network spaces better for everyone. If you're interested in a computer engineer Barbie remix, Reddit research to TikTok, Dr. Fiesler has projects for you, and you may have read about them in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Wired, and Teen Vogue. We're so excited to have this conversation with you today. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so we'll just go ahead and we'll, we'll jump right in. Uh, you have an incredible background that really spans like law, computer science, and digital platforms. And so I was wondering if you would kind of describe your journey and getting to the issues of ethics, online governance, and some online fandom that you explore today. Yeah, it really is quite a journey. <laughs> um, and I actually started out, my undergraduate degree was in psychology. And this was in the early 2000s. And it was a magical time to be really interested in computers and especially the internet. And also at Georgia Tech at the time, every student at the university had to take an introductory programming class which turned out to be really awesome for me. Um, a lot of students really hated that they had to do that, but I kind of flourished in it. I really, I really enjoyed it. And I even considered double majoring in computer science, but then realized there was such little overlap between the two majors that it would take less time for me to get a master's degree than to double major. Um, so, I, so, so I ended up getting a master's degree in human-computer interaction. And I was so, so into the internet and online communities. And part of the reason was because I had discovered fan fiction on Usenet when I was in high school, you know, connecting via our dial-up modem to American Online, <laughs> which is the other reason that college in the early 2000s was amazing was because they had fast internet and fast for then, maybe not fast for now. Um, and so... I was really into, into fan fiction. I was like running Star Trek role-playing games. And I try, And when I started my master's degree, I really wanted to do research. And so I found the one professor in the computer science department who was doing something related to the internet, online communities. And she was actually researching like educational technology and online communities. So I started working with her. And also when I took an online communities class, we read... Lawrence Lessig's book, Code, which was written in the late 90s and was about the concept that code is a form of regulation, how much power like the design of technologies has over, over constraining what we can do. And I was so fascinated by that. And I was also so fascinated by copyright law because of fan fiction. And so this uh, conflation of interests and also the fact that I got a much higher score on the LSAT than I did on the GRE. It convinced me that it was my fate to go to law school. So I did. <laughs> I, I went to law school and I would say that was a, a mixed experience. Parts of it I super hated, but anything that had to do with the things that I just mentioned, <laughs> internet law or copyright, I, I really loved. And so I, I, I got through law school. I was trying to decide what to do next. 
And I had realized maybe two thirds of the way through law school, what little interest I had in being a lawyer. And I thought about maybe pursuing a career as a law professor, but then realized that I did, I really did want to be a professor, but not a law professor because I wanted to go back to doing empirical research. Like I'd done all of this research as a psychology major and then about, you know, in the computer science department. And I had gotten really into legal scholarship by working on a law review that was related to technology law. And I was really frustrated by the lack of empiricism in legal scholarship. And so that is the story of how I ended up getting a PhD in human-centered computing and doing a dissertation about copyright law and online communities and also fandom. So that's how that, that came in. But also as a, as a law school graduate, I was particularly well qualified to teach classes related to policy and computing and society. So I ended up teaching the required computer science ethics class at Georgia Tech. This was also, you know, as I was finishing up my PhD, it was like 2014, 2015, and suddenly internet ethics just seemed like this incredibly urgent, important thing. And so I, when I started my faculty position, I shifted some of my research in that direction. And then, and this is a thing that happens when you're in a lab-based discipline where you work very closely with PhD students. I have not had a single PhD student come work with me who wants to do work related to the law. <laughs> and so my, so my research focus shifted really strongly toward, towards ethics over, over formal, formal law. Um, but I think that's been good because it still feels very urgent and important. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I love that you took us on that journey and brought us to where you are today. I think it's always fascinating to know just – kind of how the twists and turns have led someone to these really fascinating topics. So I appreciate you sharing that. And I know that you mentioned you work with research teams and students, and I can tell that's like a really big part of what you do. And so I was kind of wondering if, you know, in the context of when you're doing this work, what what do you mean? Like, can you define maybe like, what do you mean when you say ethical? Or what do ethics for technology development teams, like what does that really entail? I mean, that's a great question. And I, I confess I have written several papers, particularly about ethics education, that has a paragraph that says, and by the way, ethics is not a well-defined term. You know, ethics, I think, is a useful shorthand for maybe a group of things that also involves things like responsibility and justice. But I think when people when you talk when people talk to me about, you know, technology ethics and I say that's what I do, you know, they immediately think of things like surveillance and AI bias and online privacy and this sort of conflation of, of things. I often conceptualize this as how can technology hurt people less? I mean, harm is only one way of conceptualizing ethics, but I think that it's a it's a really important one, you know. And as you said when you were describing my bio, I, I try to think about like not only ways to reduce harm of technology, but also ways to to um, amplify the good parts of it. And so, you know, I I do spend a lot of time thinking about the bad parts of technology. However, I also really enjoy 
studying the positive aspects, which is one of the reasons I still do work on fan communities, because there's a lot of things about fan communities that are just really kind of magical. And it's not that there's not bad stuff there too, but looking at like communities of social support, for example, I think is really great. And how can we have more of that and less, you know, hate speech and harassment and misinformation and all the other things that you would think of? Yeah. Yeah. And I love that you offered that because I know ethics, I mean, you could take entire courses, like you said, even like you're writing and everyone's just like, it's really broad. And you know, like, this is kind of how it is. So like, think of it however you think of it. And that's it. And so I, I appreciate that you put it within like the frame of this question of like, how can tech hurt people less? And that kind of brings me to another question, which, you know, when we're thinking about like big technology companies and your research on social media platforms and fandom communities and, you know, what are some of those ethical challenges then or dilemmas that the companies face that, you know, maybe those spaces face, um, especially when we're thinking about the context of, you know, hurt? Yeah, I mean, there are probably so many examples. And one of the interesting things about tech ethics and teaching it, but also teaching anything that's like related to technology, any computer science class. One of of the things that I work on is ethics education and computer science. And sometimes it's like, well, how do I get students to care about ethics? I'm like, how could you not? Like, there is nothing that's more relevant in terms of like, it's in the news constantly. Like there's not news articles every day about how to design operating systems, but like there is definitely something about technological harms in the news every single day. And so, you know, I bet anyone listening to this could absolutely come up with five examples off off the top of their head. Um, And I'm actually teaching a tech ethics and policy class this semester. And I start every class by talking about like three things that are that are in the news. But I think some of the things that we've been hearing most about lately one of is, of course, a lot of different things related to privacy, data, privacy, surveillance, you know, what does Facebook know about me? What does Amazon know about me? What, you know, what is visible to other people? How do I protect my privacy, etc.? And there's a lot of things that have been happening in recent years related to that, some around <clears throat> regulation, GDPR um, in in the EU, and actually Colorado also just passed the data privacy law. It's one of only a few states um, that have that kind of law. So there's a lot happening there. Another one that I think is a thing that people are becoming more and more aware of is algorithmic and AI bias. So, so many examples... (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, everything from, oh, Amazon's hiring algorithms were sexist to Google's Google image search was labeling photographs of black people as gorillas. And then just two weeks ago, Facebook does the same thing. And that was four years ago or five years ago. So these things are there's a lot more awareness, but they're not quite going away. Maybe they're getting better. But so, you know, I think a a lot around that, you know, hiring is a big one. Um, What we're being shown on social media via algorithms. And I think that because of the large amount of news coverage of this, there's more of an understanding that, oh, 
algorithms aren't completely neutral. And yes, technology can be racist. That said, I'm sometimes surprised by the number of people on TikTok, for example, who have never heard this before. They saw one of my videos. So I, I don't have a I don't have a great sense for really how widespread awareness of that is, but certainly way more than it was five years ago. Um, and then I would say related, you know, another thing that I think is getting a ton of attention, especially in the past year, content moderation. It's a huge one. Um, and we, you know, and this this isn't a new thing. It's even, it's a really, really, it's an area of research in social computing and computer science that has exploded just in the past like four years. But especially over the past year, as platforms started taking, you know, more of a stance on some things, you know, Twitter banning Donald Trump was a huge uh, flashpoint there, I think. Lots of attention to content moderation. And what's interesting is a platform like Twitter gets heavily criticized both for moderating too much and for moderating too little. And so it's an extremely tricky area. And, you know, a lot of these things that have to do, especially with algorithmic decisions, like what do you see on your newsfeed and, you know, what kind of content stays up versus go, goes down. Going back to the problem of harm, a lot of times, however you calibrate the algorithm, it's going to harm the same people. So, you know, a big example of this is hate speech. So if you have a, if you have a hate speech detector... You have to calibrate it for whether it's going to have more false positives or more false negatives, because it's not going to be perfect ever. If you have more false positives, that means that content that is not hate speech is getting flagged as hate speech. And a lot of what gets flagged as hate speech when it's not hate speech is people talking about hate speech. So people from marginalized groups who are talking about their own experiences or speaking out against hate speech are having their content suppressed. But on the other hand, if you have too many false negatives, it's not taking down hate speech. And then people from marginalized groups are seeing it and being harmed. So either way, you're hurting the same people. Um, and I think those kinds of challenges are are really, really rough and don't even necessarily have have great solutions and people are going to disagree about what it should be. You're listening to Looks Like New, a show that asks old questions about new tech. Stick with us. We'll be back soon. Welcome back to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio. We've been speaking with Dr. Casey Fiesler about ethics and social media. Yes, yeah, and I I feel like that's been kind of the core of what I've been noticing even in like the headlines like you were talking about and just like even within social circles is there's this constant like, you know, freedom of speech and then moderation and like if you moderate too much, if you moderate too little and how are these algorithms being, you know, programmed and like how is this all working together and there's just it's just a very messy space I feel and I think from, you know, taking a step back even and I was thinking about 
you know, companies like Facebook and, and Twitter and when they're starting to do all of these different things to try to combat some of these issues that are bubbling up and really hurting people, you know, there's always backlash to every every decision that's made. And I just was thinking too about how many users are on these platforms, like billions of people now. Um, and I've been having those conversations, like whether it's possible even to regulate or to enforce, you know, blanket standards for social media companies or big tech companies more broadly. And I was just wondering, like, from your perspective and some of the things you've been kind of working through, what are some of these arguments maybe about the need for regulation or legislation? And what could those outcomes potentially also entail? Yeah, this is really tricky. Um, in fact, this happens to be the topic of my class this week. <laughs> uh, we were talking about regulation and in particular, different types of regulation beyond what you usually think of. So a thing that I've noticed, and this is both in teaching and just in talking to people about ethical issues in tech, people very often jump to regulation as a solution. Like there should be a law. There should be a law against misinformation, for example. And I think that sometimes there does need to be a law, but that is very hard to do for one thing. And it's very slow. And very often laws do not have the effect that you want them to to have, either because they're difficult to enforce or they're too vague, uh, etc. But there does become a point when regulation is the only solution because other solutions aren't working. Bad PR isn't working. <laughs> Complaining customers isn't working. People leaving your platform isn't working. Public shaming isn't working. Your own personal ethical compass is not working and good talent not coming to your company because you have a bad ethical reputation is not working. So if none of those things work, then sometimes regulation is, you know, the only solution. And probably the best example to me of this is GDPR, the general data protection regulations in the EU. So you might remember like three-ish years ago, suddenly you got an email from every platform and website and technology you had ever used, informing you that their privacy policy had changed. And the reason for that is because of these regulations that govern EU citizens. But like, it's way easier to just change your privacy policy than to have to figure out who using your website is in the EU and have different rules for them. So this ha had massive, massive changes uh, for, for pri privacy um, policies. And some companies have gotten huge fine, fines because of it. So I think that, you know, it's, it's, it remains a little bit to be seen, sort of the, you know, long-term impacts of that. But I do think that it has had, um, has had a big, big impact. So that's one, one example. Um, it was also fairly concrete in terms of what they needed to do, whereas something like a law against misinformation would be much, much more challenging. So, you know, another thing to keep in mind then is that, like, government laws, are, you know, it's not the only form of, of regulation. In fact, there's this great book written by Lawrence Lessig in the late 90s called Code. I think I mentioned it earlier, actually. And again, it's about how 
code and architecture is a form of regulation. And, you know, an example of this is like outside of technology, Robert Moses, who was the master builder of New York, you know, widely accepted fact that he intentionally built the bridges uh, too low for city buses to go underneath so that only the desirable people could go to the beaches. That's a great example of how you can regulate things with architecture. And there are examples of this with technology all, you know, all, all over. Like sometimes there are things that you just can't do. Digital rights management. If we can't make people care that copyright infringement is illegal, let's just make it actually impossible for them to copy something. And so sometimes that kind of regulation can can work as well. And then there's also like social norms as a form of regulation. And I actually do think that bad PR and losing good talent are two things that that can affect the bottom line of big tech companies. And sometimes and sometimes that's all you got. Like I would like to think that, you know, the people in charge who have power to make changes want to do the right thing. But if they don't, then sometimes bad PR can push it. And there are also good people working at all of these big tech companies. I get a little bit frustrated as well by people who are like, well, you know, how could you possibly go work at Facebook if you're an ethical person? And I'm like, so do you think the solution is for only unethical people to work at Facebook? Like, I think, I feel like that's a bad solution. Like either Facebook ceased to exist or ethical people work there. <laughs> like the other solutions do not seem, do not seem good to me. <laughs> I completely agree. Yeah. <laughs> I hear that a hundred percent. And I, I've heard that too, where it's like, there's almost this idea of like, oh, if you go to Google or Facebook, you've sold your soul because like they're just non-ethical monsters that will just gobble you up and, you know, only the bad will prevail and whatnot. And I love how you just mentioned like, wouldn't you want the opposite? Like, wouldn't you want more ethical people to be like, hey, maybe we should think about this or the design, you know, like maybe that would be good, right? (laughs) I have a lot of friends who work at Facebook and I'm really glad they're there. Um, I mean, you know, it can, there, there's been a lot of stuff in the news also about like tech workers and organizing and that sort of thing. And it can be really challenging to affect change at big companies, but I would like there to be people trying. Absolutely. And I think that kind of actually leads me into the next question, obviously. But, you know, I was fascinated with your work on, you know, this new NSF grant that you were awarded and this mention of more, you know, forward thinking about tech issues or the tech ethics or, you know, how we can better prepare for these things rather than only focusing on the retroactive, like, we got to clean up another mess, like, whoop de doo you know? And so I was wondering if you could kind of share more about the vision for the development of an ethical futures toolkit and how it might lead to that process of forward thinking if it's adopted within these, you know, different technology spaces. Yeah, so there there are two things that inspired this particular proposal, which I was incredibly uh, happy and, and and honored to to get. Not not only because it's great to have funding, but also because it suggested it's something that's important, and that you know the the computer science directorate of the National Science Foundation thinks that this is important, and that makes me very happy. Um, so 
One thing is, and this is a concept that I've been working on with one of my PhD advisees, Natalie Garrett. Um, so some people might be familiar with the concept of technical debt. It's a concept in, in like software development that is basically like, you know, there's going to be bugs in a thing, <laughs> but you have a release date and you need to push it out. And so the idea is that, you know, you're kind of accruing some some debt because you know you're going to have to fix stuff later and it's always harder to fix stuff later. But you just know that that's a thing. And so, you know, you push it out and someone sends you an email and says, this submit button doesn't work. And then you fix it. Technical debt. So we've been thinking about the idea of ethical debt, which is the same kind of thing, except instead of, oh, no, the button's in the wrong place. It's like, oh, oops, our social media platform undermine democracy. <laughs> uh, and the problem with that, the problem with that kind of bug is that the harm's already done. You know, you, one of my favorite examples is Zoom bombing. And the reason that's my favorite example is because the CEO of Zoom did an interview with the New York Times where he said, you know, we never thought about possible misuses or risks of our platform. And I was like, really? <laughs> and, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. However, I feel like if you had explained how Zoom works to me and like, here's a privacy protocol. So there's this random eight digit number <laughs> and, you know, and meetings are public by default. Uh, I might have come up with people are going to input random eight digit numbers and try to go into people's meetings and do things like yell racial slurs. Could one have thought about that? beforehand and not waited for the harm to happen, right? Because people who were Zoom bombed and it happened in one of the classes in our department and it was really bad, can't unsee that. You cannot, you can't undo that, that harm. Like you can try to fix it for, for later, but the harm, but the harm's already done. So I've been thinking about that in terms of how could we think about things during the design process instead of waiting to see what the problems are. Like, you know, I'm building a new social media platform and I'm sure this is going to have some impact on society. Uh, I'm pr it's probably going to do something bad, but I don't know what it is. So I'll wait and see what bad things happen and then I'll try to figure out how to fix it. And this isn't to say that, like, we should be clairvoyant. You know, when Mark Zuckerberg was in his dorm room, like, building a website to, like, rate hot girls at Harvard... It is very reasonable that he was not thinking about possible impacts on presidential elections. However, at some point, you know, in the evolution, you know, some of these problems should have become clear or at least more likely. And again, there are lots of people who are working on these things. And some, some of these are such wicked problems that like there aren't even good solutions or a solution is going to make more problems, et cetera. But there's some amount of foresight that you can have, right? So, so that was one thing. And then also I was doing this teaching exercise in my class that I call the Black Mirror Writer's Room, where I was having students plot episodes of Black Mirror based on things that we were learning in class about possible technological harms. And so the idea is to take something that you're worried about, content moderation, social media privacy, AI bias, and think about 
a thing that might be happening in 10 or 20 years, what, you know, what's a potential harm? How could you tell a cautionary tale about it? And then um, also think about, you know, once you've done the fun part, also think about how might we not get there? But the thing that really struck me was how much students loved doing this and how good they were at thinking about possible harms of some technology that someone might create in 50 years. And I was like, if you can do that, you should be able to think about the possible harms of the technology that you're creating tomorrow. And so this whole project is built around the idea of how can we help people do that? And so part of it is around like doing some analysis of ethical controversies over time. Like what are the, what are the pitfalls that we can try to avoid? Also doing some speculation work with people from marginalized groups about what kinds of harms they experience and foresee. And then thinking about how to do this best in teams, like, you know, taking that teaching exercise that I do and what would that look like if it was a real product? So like, what would it look like if we did it in a user-centered design class with their group projects? And then what might it look like if we did it with a project design team at Facebook? Yeah, I love that. And I think I think it's always fascinating too, just, you know, with your work with students, even I'm like imagining all of these like wild things they can foresee, right? But it, it does kind of make me think, like you were saying, like where, like how in this process of getting to where we are today, like how did no one like come up with this potential, you know, like how did, you know, was it something that just wasn't, you know, foreseeable at all or like, and how they're wrestling with it now. And, you know, when I'm thinking about trying to understand the process of how we kind of get to, you know, things like what we're facing today, you know, what are some of those things that happen maybe within a company? Is it, is it the deadline drive perhaps that maybe pushes things before they should be? Or, you know, what, what exactly is it in the process potentially that, that you can identify that might be leading to, you know, potentially damaging outcomes before they were prevented? I mean, I do think that, you know, you mentioned sort of like deadlines and release dates needing to get things out. And I think that's absolutely part of it, like needing to work fast, you know, so Mark Zuckerberg, again, I hate picking on Facebook all the time, but it's, you know, it's the example that people immediately think of. And there's just so many. And it's because it's so huge, right? Like, I'm sure there are a ton of like small apps and little platforms that have lots of problems, but they're not impacting 3 billion people. So, (laughs) Um, but Mark Zuckerberg famously said, move fast and break things. And it walked that back eventually because really it was a bad look. But that was, that it was, you know, Absolutely. Even if people don't say it as much now, that's still a mindset in, in Silicon Valley. And, and, but that comes down to, I mean, honestly, like, this seems so simplistic, but capitalism, I mean, it's just like it, making, like, when you think about a lot of the ethical issues in tech and why they exist, it's because someone needs to make money. And that's just how it is. I mean, and actually, so the Wall Street Journal this week is going real hard at Facebook. Um, They have this series of investigative reports that are coming out. um, And the one that came out, I believe, yesterday was about intentional changes that they made to their algorithm to increase engagement. Engagement metrics often are not always, but often are at odds with things like, you know, healthy 
um, pro-social behavior. And part of that is because what makes us comment a lot on something? Because we're arguing, right? Mm -hmm. This comes up a lot on TikTok, actually, because engagement, like comments and stitches, push content out in the algorithm, which makes you get more views. And if you're in the creator fund, makes you make more money. And so people who are getting a lot of hate even are like, well, thanks guys. At least, like, at least you're making me money. And so, <laughs> so, you know, people are keeping comments on et cetera. And even though they're getting all this hate, it's pushing their content out because an algorithm can't tell the difference necessarily between I love you and I hate you. And it's just a comment, right? Um, I mean, there are certainly ways that it could, but in the end, does it really care about the difference between I love you and I hate you? If if more engagement means you spend more time on, on the platform, which means more eyeballs on ad, which means more money. Um, and that's one of the things that this Wall Street Journal report was talking about was how like the angry um, reaction on Facebook was given sort of more weight in the algorithm. And so, and then you also think about ads, obviously, like a lot, a lot of things around data privacy have to do with selling our data, selling our data to advertisers, et cetera. And the thing is, platforms do have to make money. Like you're not building, you know, a tech company out of the goodness of your heart. Like sometimes, sometimes there are, there are, you know, nonprofits out there. There are, you know, platforms that make money based on donations, etc. Wikipedia is one. Archive of Our Own is another. Don't have ads. Rely on people donating. You think people would donate to Facebook? So it's a really, really tricky, tricky thing. And, you know, there is some amount of like work and discourse, etc. around tech ethics that has to appreciate a reality of business models and you know try to think how to work how to work within that and that makes some problems more difficult than others there are also trade-offs that are really challenging so i talked about like the difference between false positives and false negatives in an algorithm another kind of trade-off it um that's really important right now i think is for content moderation so like there's algorithmic content moderation and there's human content moderation and algorithmic content moderation has a ton of flaws, those false positives and those false negatives. Like it's sometimes it's just bad human content moderation, PTSD, you know, and, you know, issues with like mental health and workers not being paid well, et cetera. Um, and so, you know, saying, well, uh, algorithms are bad. So more content should be looked at by humans. So that's a, you know, that's a trade-off. It's bad either way. And I think there are lots of things like that. You're listening to Looks Like New, a show that asks old questions about new tech. Stick with us. We'll be back soon.
Welcome back to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio. We've been speaking with Dr. Casey Fiesler about ethics and social media. Yeah, yeah. And I appreciate you highlighting, too, just the complexity of the issues themselves, but then you add that business layer to it, and suddenly it's just like, oh my God, this is a huge, huge thing. And, you know, that even makes me think about you know, the individual user. Like, I feel like most of us can acknowledge at least now at this point that, you know, our data is being sold. <laughs> data are being sold. You know, it's it's something that's actively happening. We have agreed to engage in this process by default of even clicking, cons- like, I consent or something uh, to terms of service and, and different conditions. But, you know, it's it's making me think too about the ethics of the individual on these spaces. And, you know, what are some of the ethical scenarios that individual users of social media platforms might face? And like, how can individuals maybe even conduct themselves in more ethical ways online? I mean, I do think that a lot of these big ethical issues that we talk about are on individuals. Well, and on bad actors, honestly, I mean, hate speech, harassment, misinformation, you know, Twitter and Facebook aren't creating misinformation. They're not harassing people. Platforms can amplify these kinds of problems and make them worse. You know, I I, I often use misinformation as an example for this kind of thing in that when it first started to become a huge topic of conversation, like, I don't know, 2015, so many people were jumping to, well, Facebook needs to fix it. Google needs to fix it. And I do believe that there are technological band-aids that can be put on the problem of misinformation. And they have been a whole lot of them in the past five years. That said, if you have to go to page four of Google search results to see the search result that confirms what you already believe, a lot of people will go to page four and not believe anything that's on pages one through three. So like we need to tweak an algorithm to suppress misinformation or suppress likely misinformation or to flag misinformation or to label it like Twitter and sometimes Facebook does. Those things might help, but it's not a technological problem. It's a human problem. Like the actual issue is why are people creating misinformation and why are they believing it? And why are they sharing it? And that's a way harder problem to solve than let's tweak an algorithm. But it also, one of the reasons that that human problem is so hard to solve is because it starts sometimes, a lot of times, misinformation, at least disinformation starts with someone saying, I'm going to create something that is false on purpose for some reason. Or again, you know, harassment, online harassment, like I'm going to go send death threats to people on Twitter. Things that people do that is objectively unethical. The example I always like to use is ransomware on hospitals. I cannot imagine any any possible justification beyond just you are a horrible, horrible person. <laughs> you know, this is not an ethically gray area. Sometimes they're just bad people. And, you know, one of the things is like, you know, again, I do some work on like computer science ethics education. Like I can't help those people. You're not going to come to my class and learn to be a good person. But I can help people 
see harms that they might not realize, right? And I think that's the bigger problem, like seeing harms that they don't realize and also thinking through these trade-offs and thinking through possible solutions, et cetera. But if you want to make money off of hacking medical records and making them inaccessible to people, like I can't help. I, I can't help you. That's where you got to have regulation, right? Like regulation is, is what deals with like the truly bad people. Like, cause unfortunately, you know, there are, there are bad, there are bad people. Um, so, you know, at an individual level, that's, that's part of it is like, what do we do about, you know, bad actors as, as individuals? Um, and the other thing for individuals is that I do think that the more, technical literacy that people can have, the more they can understand the ways that technology is working on them, the impact that it's having on them and possible harms to try to avoid for themselves and for and for the people that they that they care about. Like a lot of people I think think that technology is magic. And if it seems like it's magic and you don't understand how it's working, you don't understand things like bias, right? Well, you know, that algorithm said that I am not as in need of medical care as this person over here. So I guess that's true because it's because it's just math. You know, an algorithm said it. It's not like a biased person said it. Um, but if you understand how these algorithms are built and how machine learning works and where training data comes from, then you understand how that might be flawed. It's this great documentary, Coded Bias, that follows in part the work of Joy Bulamwini on uh, racial bias and facial recognition. And part of it is also talking about predictive policing and recidivism algorithms. And there's, you know... I've seen stories in that documentary and other places about someone realizing that this is a problem. Like you wouldn't have thought to ask unless you, you know, heard about it on the news or something. Um, like why, why was my parole denied? And this person over here, theirs wasn't. Well, I guess it was just math. But if you, if you have an understanding of, 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 of how that works and you might be able to advocate more for yourself. So I'm not one of those people that thinks everyone needs to learn how to code, but I do think that some, the more you know about that kind of thing, the more you understand about how computers work. And sometimes, you know, sometimes it can just be taking an intro programming class in college, or sometimes it's just reading a book like race after technology or weapons of math destruction or something, something like that. The more, you know, yeah, and I love that you brought up that idea of of, you know, tech literacy and I it's something I'm definitely, you know, fascinated by as just a person, but also too just like looking around and it's like, you know, there were so many things that it took me so long to figure out were happening and once I figured it out, I was like oh my God, like, why did no one tell me this? Like, you know, when I got my first, you know, Instagram account or something, like, why did I not know actually how this thing worked. You know, I didn't have to know, like you said, like, I don't need to know all the coding stuff. I, you know, all of the little things, but like, generally speaking, how this was functioning. And, you know, I think about even like food labels or something like that. Like I'm, you know, I can read these breakdowns of, you know, this is what's going on in this product. Right. But then you have this other element of like, now I've opted into a system that I might not understand. And so, you know, from your perspective, what are some of those major, you know, things that people should know about in terms of tech literacy? And it, 
doesn't have to be like a whole, you know, here's everything, but, you know, just briefly, like what are some things you can think of that are really important for the average user or consumer or person to know? actually the kinds of things that I was just talking about in terms of like automated decision making and when there when there are algorithms involved and that kind of thing I think can be really important um I mean even just realizing for example that your Facebook feed is being impacted by an algorithm so in 2014 there was this huge controversy about um an experiment that researchers ran uh, on Facebook where they tweaked the newsfeed algorithm to show people more positive or more negative content, um, emotionally positive or negative, in order to see if their subsequent posts were more positive or negative. Like they were testing the psychological phenomenon of emotional contagion on Facebook to see if it worked. And like, you know, and they wrote a paper about it and the answer was yes, very small effect size, like (laughs) very small effect size, but yes, it was a thing. And they published a paper about it. And, you know, the first news articles were like, emotional contagion is a thing on social media. And then all the news articles were, Facebook is manipulating you to make you sad. (laughs) Um, And so it was actually this huge thing in like research ethics for, for social media. And it was one of the things that actually inspired me to start doing work in that area. But one of the things that was interesting about it was that a lot of people were upset, not necessarily just about the experiment, but by realizing that their news feeds were manipulated at all. Like a huge number of people just thought they were seeing everything on Facebook. And a lot of people think they want to see everything on Facebook, but they don't actually want to see everything on Facebook. There's been some research that shows that too. And so, you know, an understanding that an algorithm that's and what kinds of things it's based on is is influencing what information you see that also can explain things around misinformation and polarization and filter bubbles. You know, so here's another great example. Um, You know, I know a lot of people who, you know, don't know anyone besides themselves who voted for the person in the presidential, who didn't vote for the person in the presidential election that they voted for. Like, I don't know a single person who voted for Donald Trump, or I don't know a single person who voted for Joe Biden. I know people who feel both of those ways. And that's always been an issue because of who we surround ourselves by. However, being on social media like Facebook makes us feel like our world is a lot bigger. (laughs) (laughs) then, you know, oh, you know, the people in my family and at work and in my local area vote the same way I do is different than, well, literally no one I've ever seen on Facebook likes Donald Trump is a, is a really different kind of feeling about the, about the scope of it. Right. And if you think that you're seeing all of Facebook, but actually you're seeing people who think the same way that you think because of an algorithm, that's really different. And the same thing with like Google search results, right? And so I think that having that understanding can actually, you know, help you be sort of more introspective about about that kind of thing. And same thing with like, you know, in terms of algorithms showing us stuff like, actually, TikTok is, is the like most pure recommendation system that I can think of, especially, you know, with, with social media. 
if you think that TikTok is giving you any kind of view of the world besides exactly what you want to see, you are wrong. (laughs) Um, And, you know, also understanding how that works makes you understand how certain types of bias get built built into it, right? Like, is it that the TikTok algorithm is racist or is it that you are racist or is it that everyone else on TikTok is racist? And it's, you know, some kind of combination of those. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, even I'm I'm even thinking back about the recommended for you sections now. And I've seen some people that are upset that that's even happening. And I'm like, well, that's not really new. Like they're they're just kind of like maybe they've got a fancy little section for it now and like the design of the platform. But that's always been going on. But, you know, like so. No, I, I love that you you've highlighted some of those things. And I think, again, they're just super important for people to know about. And especially if you're going to engage on these platforms at all, just like knowing that you're not actually viewing the world as this like free open space of information and whatever you plug in is just like, this is the actual, you know, like it's very curated and very specific to you. And I feel like people are definitely starting to become more aware of it, which does make me excited. I appreciate you bringing those things up. And then I guess I, I want to close kind of on a question because I, I know you mentioned this earlier of how, you know, you haven't given up all hope for these. Like there, there are some great things happening in these spaces. And I want to kind of continue that thought with, you know, what fills you with hope about the future of social media and technology? Yeah, so I named my lab the Internet Rules Lab uh, in part because it's a cool ac- acronym, IRL. Um, but I said, I, you know, I study, I study rules on the internet, but also ways that the internet rules. <laughs> um, and, you know, like, and I recently did an interview with someone where they were like, you know, do you think that, so that it's impossible for social media to be ethical? Like, should we just throw it all out? And I was like, no, no, we should not throw it all out. Um, with all of these kinds of problems that we've talked about, the internet and online communities especially have done amazing things and technology has done amazing things. Um, like, you know, again, I talk a lot about like the evils of algorithms, et cetera, but like I have an insulin pump with an algorithm that is keeping me alive. <laughs> so I really appreciate that. Um, and also, you know, online communities are such amazing spaces for social support. You know, one of my PhD students, Brianna Dim, um, led a study a few years ago where she talked to a lot of LGBTQ people in fandom communities and heard these amazing stories, especially from young people, about how discovering Tumblr literally saved their lives because they mm. like lived in a rural area where they had never met another gay person or another trans person or they'd never heard of trans people or they you know were not safe in their in their real life and this you know allowed them to find community and find support and help and that sort of thing and i just think that's so so important and most people can probably think of another example of that even something you know from their from their own lives and so I think that that kind of thing is is just going to continue. I think we have to combat all of these problems because we want to have those amazing online interactions and support spaces without misinformation and harassment and and hate speech and and all of that. Um, but but I think that those spaces still exist. And then 
The other thing I'll add about my hope, you know, is that I've been interacting with a lot of young people lately, especially because of because of TikTok and YouTube and this kind of thing. And I think, you know, like younger, you know, Gen Z, like real digital natives are thinking a lot more about this stuff, Um, you know, even than people people my age. Um, And I think really care. You know, there's sometimes this traditional wisdom like, oh, you know, young people don't care about privacy, et cetera. I don't actually think that's true. Um, I think that there's a little bit of like weird nuance in the way that that people think about privacy if you've grown up, you know, on on social media. But it doesn't mean you don't care about it. It might mean that you understand it better um, than than some other people. But I do think I, I feel very hopeful in part because of this like strong sort of social justice bent that I think a lot of people have um, have right now. And I think that's going to make its way into our, the design of technology, too. This has been such a fantastic conversation. So I just want to say thank you so much for being here and again, for sharing all of this amazing research that you're doing and different things you're thinking about and things that students have brought forward or prompted in your life. And so I just want to say thank you. Well, and thank you so much. These were really good questions, and I got to talk about some of my favorite things. <laughs> You've been listening to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio, a show that asks old questions about new tech. We've been speaking with Dr. Casey Fiesler. If you would like to find out more about Dr. Fiesler's work, visit caseyfiesler.com I'm Bailey Troutman, today's host of Looks Like New, a production of CU's Media Enterprise Design Lab. You can find out more about our work at colorado.edu slash lab slash medlab. If you liked what you heard, please spread the word about this show and consider leaving a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Leaving reviews will help our conversations reach more listeners. We would love to hear your comments or guest ideas so you can reach us by emailing medlab at colorado.edu. I hope you'll join us for another conversation next month.